0: Animoca brands have been around for some time, pre-forays into blockchain and Web3 as a gaming studio and publisher, but came into the Web3 blockchain space in 2017 with CryptoKitties and hasn't looked back since. Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on a good friend of Outlive Ventures, Robbie Young, CEO of Animoca Brands. Welcome, Robbie. Hi, good to be here. Thanks, Jamie. So I was just saying, I think this is the Third or fourth time we've been in one another's company over the last month or so. Maybe more, actually, if I include the Animoca launch party. As you said, something's either going wrong or right. We'll let other people decide that by the end of this. A quick intro to Animoca, I'm assuming if people are in Web3, they know who you are, they know who Animoca is, but maybe as a quick refresher. Animoca brands have been around for some time, pre-forays into blockchain and Web3. as a gaming studio and publisher, but came into the Web3 blockchain space. In 2017 with CryptoKitties and hasn't looked back since, is now very comfortably and consistently in the top three investors in the space, just generally, and have a, an amazing portfolio from Axe Infinity, OpenSea, Dappelabs, Labs, Yuga Games Uh, etc, etc. And there was news around your kind of planned fund, a couple of billion for the open metaverse. Animoca Brands is described as delivering property rights to gamers and building open metaverse. Maybe we just start that. What does that mean? How do you define gaming? Because of course, it's quite broad. If You look at your portfolio, it's not just literal games, it's Correct. culture and all the kind of convergent elements of that, right? fashion, music, et cetera, entertainment.
1: Correct. So I, we, in, as an investor, we invest broadly in what we call Web3 culture. So that includes, as you said, fashion and music and DeFi and infrastructure and other things. But as an, as an operating company, we make games, obviously, and that's what our studios are concentrated on. And I think that what we're trying to do in pushing forward the creation of an open metaverse and the adoption of Web3 more broadly is to really try to deliver on this promise of being able to deliver digital ownership, digital property rights. And we think gamers actually represent the biggest constituency within entertainment. So we start with them because owning property, digital property in games, we feel is quite natural because gamers have been accustomed to already using virtual currency to buy Virtual land or virtual items for many years. And so to do so in a much more secure and definitive way using blockchain in a Web3 environment, we think is just
0: natural for them. And I was on Twitter early today, as is usual, ranting about various things and got into some conversation around if you think about digital property rights. For example, I think it was triggered by Apple blocking, I forget what it was now. Was it Coinbase? It, yeah. Coinbase wallet. Yeah, because they wanted 30% on the gas transaction. On the gas fees, just, yes. And so they're the ultimate kind of middleman, right? They're the ultimate intermediary kind of ta- trying to tax every transaction and actually breaking a lot of the potential of Web3 just breaks the fundamental economics of 30%. It's got to leave every transaction right around an NFT. But if you think about it, and of course, it's not just limited to Apple, but more generally Web2, it's state of feudalism. Where there are no property rights, it's just Mm -hmm. surf. And so what we're really talking about is this uh, emancipation of of the the kind of digital citizen, really. And of course, gaming has, you would imagine, this affinity. Now, I was on stage with your business partner, Yat, recently, and he challenged this idea that gamers don't want Digital property rights. Gamers don't want blockchain. Said it's very much a kind of Western narrative. Could you just talk about that a little sure. bit more? Because again, I think a lot of people think Discord, they think Steam, they think this kind of backlash in the Ubisoft game yep. around NFTs. Gamers don't want NFTs. I think that's
1: actually a short and pithy headline. I think it's largely based on the fact that the majority of the gaming community is just not aware of what's going on in Web3 and doesn't really understand the technology because it's new to them and it's new to so many people. And, you and I spend an inordinate amount of our time focused on tokenization and things like that, that most of the world doesn't really care for yet because they don't understand what it's going to do for them. And so I think that this is a Western narrative to the extent that if I look back at comparisons, the idea of the free-to-play business model in games or the reaction to it, the negative reaction was largely also a Western phenomenon because there was, there was a fear that the model was too focused on making profits on the part of the game company and not being in the interest of creating fun for users. But it's it's a narrative that falls apart very quickly when you think about who makes games, companies. What do companies do? They pay their employees and try to make profits. It doesn't matter what your business model of how you charge your user is. The goal of a game company is at least to make some money along the way. So, you know, know,
0: right is the point. Yes, very
1: risky business. Exactly, and they don't set themselves up to be nonprofits and charities. They it's inadvertent that they don't make money (laughs) right along the way. And so, I think what's happened here is that a lot of the noise around the most viciously vertical part of the hype cycle was around people's ability to make money in Web three because people were making a lot of money. And very often what happens, whether for good or for ill, when people are making money, they're like, hey, I'm making money. They show off. They try, maybe if they're not showing off, they're just evangelizing to their friends because, hey, you could make some money too, because I want you to have money too. If I made it, you can make it. And it doesn't have to be a Ponzi scheme. It can just be making a recommendation to your friend. But all that noise travels. And so the narrative that began to define the space for a period of time was more about profit than about actually what's getting accomplished under the hood and so i think where we see where we see adoption amongst traditional gaming audiences is primarily where products have been created i think in the most thoughtful kind of way keeping in mind what is the value proposition being offered to the consumer because consumers of any kind hate being taken advantage of and if it's and if it attaches itself to <clears throat> some new platform or some new technology then people will blame the platform or technology for being the fact they were taken advantage of. So for example, I have a friend in the states who runs an esports league and he did an NFT drop with a branded NFT drop for his community with one of the most famous AAA mo titles or actually it's first person shooter title. And it's a branded NFT drop. They're not making a Web3 version of the game by any stretch. But what he wanted to do was create an engagement with users. And so he created NFTs that they could own skins for their players, stuff that they could show off to each other on social media, plus physical merchandise. So the utility of those collectible NFTs led to lots of community building and offline rewards. And they were priced very reasonably. So from the player's perspective, they got amazing value for this experience. And it was met with, I'd say, medium skepticism when they launched it, but it was clearly not expensive enough to be seen as a cash grab. But what he told me was six months in, all you could read about on their Discord was people who didn't participate, bummed that they didn't participate because now they've seen six months on all the benefits and rewards that essentially this new membership club, loyalty club, received. And this is from one of those communities that you would expect would be completely anti-NFT. But it wasn't about NFTs and Web3. It was about the thoughtfulness of understanding what your community wants.
0: You mentioned cycle earlier, hype cycle. And I want to drill down into that a little bit. You've been around since pre-17, but came into the space very heavily in a very committed way since then. So we've been through 18, 19, which was categorically a crypto winter. And we look forward now into 23. So where are we in the cycle? Hmm. What do you think 23 is going to look like? And sure. I know that can be answered in a couple of ways, right? Because on the one hand, there's a Web3 thing going on. On the other hmm. hand, is gaming hmm. and Why should gaming necessarily be affected by what's happening in Web3? But we start on Web3 for a second.
1: Sure. I think Web3 adoption is just continuing. It's continuing forward like an endless march that just never slows down, but doesn't move that fast. It's just inevitable. That's my view, personal view. And I don't see market conditions changing that. I think that market conditions can have the effect of accelerating or decelerating it, but nothing stops it. It's continuing a forward because it's a logical progression of technology. And it's very difficult to argue with the transformational impact it has to fairness and equity for consumers. And so consumers are going to vote with their choices and choose products that are more fair to them, as long as they understand those choices. Yeah. Uh, and I think that if I look Over the last, it's been a particularly difficult month during November, because obviously we had a massive fraud in the space that attracted a lot of high profile attention, particularly in America. So I think there's a lot of Western media attention, American media attention around what happened with FTX, which is a shame, because obviously it was not, it didn't have anything to do with Web3. It had something to do with people committing fraud. but. It has an impact on everybody on the sector because since we're in a new area of business, some casual observers may not understand the difference between criminal activity and technology sometimes. and <clears throat> But what I have observed is during this period of turbulence over the last month or so, the kind of regular conversations that I have with corporates, with IP holders like sports leagues and such, who I spend a lot of my time working with these kind of businesses helping them to think through what is going to be their Web3 strategy. How are they going to deal with their customers? How can we introduce them and entice them into building out their own corner of the metaverse, be it in Sandbox, which is one of our products or other products? And all of those conversations universally do not really give a monkey, so to speak, about what's gone on with FTX, because they see what we could call Wall Street crypto as being a different industry from... Web3 for content and entertainment. And those are now decoupled. Whereas when you and I were getting into our scrappiest in 2018 and 2019 in the last down market cycle, there was no difference because content was too immature at the time.
0: Yeah. And I think that distinction between crypto and Web3 is important. They both need one another, but crypto, in my mind anyway, is the kind of financial system around mm-hmm. Web3 that allows for people to speculate on its future value, right? And I don't mean speculate in a negative sense. It's Of course, that feeds into how it's financed as well, but really just serves as a means of price discovery for everything. Mm-hmm. I think we have a representative asset. But of course, that's where a lot of the attention goes, because that's where the big numbers are. That's where the criminality happens. And that's where the kind of more sensationalist stuff happens. But I totally agree. Meanwhile, you look into Web3, there's just a huge amount of momentum in in your perspective on the space, media entertainment, but then much broader than that, in an enterprise sense. Sometimes you feel like you've got a split personality. You speak to yeah. crypto natives that are just on Twitter all day, thinking about the markets, and they're having a meltdown. And then you just have a conversation with very serious institutions, companies, enterprise, who are deeply committed to Web3, they understand the shift and they're actually beyond piloting and testing and thinking really strategically about how they enter. So it's good that you're seeing and hearing that too.
1: Also, it also reflects the reality of how long it takes for big corporates to move. Yeah. I'm talking to some institutions like museums, these are the kind of governmental organizations that literally we may be in our next crypto winter by the time they actually come out with product because the sales cycle, so to speak, of convincing them and them getting approval to do things is years.
0: Yeah. And many of them are brand custodians, right? If you're dealing mm. with a word of IP, their the goal is to not screw the brand that has often take, taken decades to, to turn into multi-billion dollar franchises. Yeah, uh, It's a deliberate pace, really, isn't it? As yep. that kind of pr- protect that IP? So obviously, there was this news around this fund. And what was mm. really interesting about it was not necessarily the number... I think we've got used to the numbers now, a couple of billion, and I have no doubt that you'll do that and more, given your financial performance and track record in the space. But it was its stage. It's focusing primarily on growth stage. And I think that's a real indication of where we are in a cycle, where we're about to be in a cycle. Obviously, funds have a multi-year horizon, but it's not necessarily where we are now, but where you think we're heading. Yep. Could you talk us through a little bit of that what's sure. the, you know, the thesis and uh, why why do we need a growth stage fund?
1: So we've looked at setting up a this basically was an outgrowth of observations we had in our own portfolio of both companies we own as well as have invested in. And there are a handful that have started to mature. This is the same kind of class of 2017, 2018 that we're a part of, as far as our blockchain journey goes. And many of them have now become multi-billion-dollar businesses, at least by valuation. Yeah. And and these are the kind of companies that are going to be potential IPO candidates or things like that in a couple of years. We suspect, looking at a sort of two to four time four-year time horizon. And this is the reflection of how the industry matures. And there's going to be more of the following along behind them, maybe 12 months behind, 24 months behind, et cetera. And it's going to be a a perpetual cycle at some point. This just happens to be the first class. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to see how we can address working with companies at every stage of their life, because, and I'm sure this is something that actually, I know this is something that you're addressing, which is when you're a seed investor, then you have to figure out how to become a Series A investor. And when you're a Series A investor, you have to decide, do I also become a Series B investor? And maybe then you decide I'm not really a C or a D investor because that's not what I do well. But maybe in our case, what we decided was when companies get bigger, we want to have an ability to be able to continue helping them on their journey. And so what we've done is we've actually brought on board a team who have spent literally decades running what we would call traditional private equity, so growth stage fund management, to help us to do this, but in a Web3 context focused on people building for the open metaverse, because we think that this Web3 category is very exciting. And that also we see there's a gap in the market because there are funds, mostly funds are focused on the early stage and the venture stage at the moment. And so we want to be able to be there for our companies when they get bigger.
0: Yeah. So th- th- there's lots in there that we'd like to talk about. And maybe to just give some context from what we're seeing, a lot of funds have been wiped out from, from the end of this part of the cycle, especially those that had a kind of hybrid model where they were doing venture and later stage liquid trading. They were doing using a lot of leverage. Yep. And whether it's from Luna now to FTX, that's taken a lot of them out. I think $10.5 was Withdrawn from funds in November alone. I just saw the stat yesterday, which is mind-boggling. To the size of the space, that's a lot of money that's just got reallocated so- somewhere else. Now, I'm sure you and I both believe that's going to come back at some point. Mm-hmm. For now, it's left for the foreseeable future. So there is a, a real gap now for the stage, and so that that kind of rationale makes total sense. You mentioned PE, you mentioned IPO. So I guess the assumption is there is still a role for equity here, perhaps a increasing role in the world. Yeah. Could you talk through that a little bit?
1: I think there is also because businesses, I think one of the things that we have to face, which is a reality is that businesses are going to continue building value in what they do in more ways than ever. And one of the big transformations over the last five years has been businesses building value, both in tokens that they deploy as part of their product offering, as well as their own equity. Um, this is starkly apparent, particularly in infrastructure like layer one, layer two, blockchains. But even in our case as a game developer, we have many tokens that we've developed and launched within our game products and and some of those are listed and trading and so have market value associated with them. But I think that one of the things that's not going to change in the short term is that larger, Later stage investors will still be very much focused on equity as the primary creation cr- primary accrual instrument accruing value in their investment horizon because that's what they've always done and these this is the most conservative class of investors and so I think that what you'll see is most of the company w- once you get beyond a few billion dollars of market cap, I think most companies will tend to move towards a more traditional equity to IPO model, I suspect, in terms of finding ways to generate value for early shareholders who, who are also equity investors.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen as our portfolios maturing now, parts of it's maturing and have been either readying to launch a token economy or, and, and or fundraising a slightly later stage. Those that had a hybrid model, i.e. they had an equity component that were focused on commercialization as well as a Web3 component have, have more cash runway and a higher probability now of surviving a sustained bear mm-hmm. market. And then even at the early stage, we're seeing, because it's a buyer's market now, right? The investors are back in control to a degree. The VCs are setting the terms and the preference is is equity because that gives them shareholder rights in a way that a SAFT, for example, didn't yep. a promise of a token. Now, but I guess... What that means is the potential for more M&A, and we saw that with Artifact, or so that was more of an acqui-hire. and because <clears throat> it's still very early in their cycle, but really promising Web three project just gets subsumed into an existing mm-hmm. corporation. How do you think about that dynamic? Because on the one hand, it has its pros and its cons. Right, the con could be that very little disruption happens because it just gets acquired, mm-hmm. killed, or whatever mm-hmm. else. The same model we've seen Web2 do to sustain itself for some time. The flip side is, of course, that GX Web3 projects, native projects of the space can go into an organization like Nike, I'm not picking on Artifact, but fundamentally change that whole organization and yep. have distribution to billions of people. So how do you think of that? the risks opportunities. So.
1: I can't help but escape my own experiences. And I started out my journey, entrepreneurial journey in the web one era. And so actually very similarly to today, I was—I had a web development business. I was trying to convince corporates to build websites because in 1997, I thought that was a really good idea and everybody should have a website. And I think if you look at what happened in the web one era, the big outsized native successes ended up being Google to a later extent, because they were late to the party. But it's like Amazon and eBay and PayPal. And these were the pillar services that did not get acquired. PayPal is a little bit surprising, because actually, one could have guessed a bank would acquire them along the way at some point over time. So it's unusual, I think, actually, that they remained independent. Um, But everybody else who was big during that time mostly got acquired. All the people who knew how to make content, or knew how to market to users, or created infrastructure... So it would not surprise me if over time, big blockchain businesses, as in layer ones or layer twos, some of them may get acquired by telcos, for example, or other people who have lots of capital and need to figure out how they can evolve and transform their business. Just telcos went from providing voice to mostly just providing data these days. And they have scale to do that kind of MA. And to me, a telco acquiring a, a layer two scaling solution is no different than Nike acquiring artifact. They learn, they can afford to write the check, and it's actually good for them as a way to transform their business. And for a company, for a web three native company, they then may have access to practically limitless capital by comparison as being part of a larger group. So I don't think that's going to happen across the board, but I think you will see it amongst some of the players because that's typically the way traditional industry learns. A lot of it happens through M&A so that you get good talent on board who can help you
0: transform, just as you said. So do you think there's going to be a period of consolidation over the next couple of years, money kind of doubling down on growth startups rather than investing in much earlier stage projects? A year ago, you were going very broad, very active at Mm pre-seed stage. Mm -hmm. Are you going to continue that alongside Mm -hmm. the later stage or you're kind of just evolving now to double down? Sure.
1: So from our perspective, we're continuing with the same strategy as before. And I think if anything, the only thing that's changed for us is as we've gotten a little bit, more mature and a little bit bigger is that we're compartmentalizing bits of the business. So we have a venture fund separate from the operating company, and now we'll have a late stage fund separate from the operating company so that we can do more investing activity through dedicated investment businesses, as opposed to just as a corporate VC off the balance sheet. sheet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But otherwise, our thesis is exactly the same. We want to be in early at the building stage because I think... Despite the fact that there are many businesses that are maturing and in, in the next two years, let's say, I don't see it being any different than the last two in terms of all the action is going to be in seed and series A. That's, that's to me, the excitement is the people building cool new stuff. Because if you think about it, even the businesses that we would call mature today are actually quite old relative to web three. Look at our project, the sandbox. We started working on that. We wrote the plan. The team wrote the plan in the summer of 2017, and we started putting it, implementing it in 2018. So it's a four-year-old
0: product. Yeah. But older than that, because it was a mobile app game. Exactly. So it's it's actually, it's been around for 10 years. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And then reassuring, right? To to hear that commitment to early stage. Because I think from our perspective, one of the concerns is And actually, even with FTX, right, all these projects were dying. He was, Sam was referred to as the JP Morgan. He was saving the industry. He was buying up all these companies quite aggressively and effectively trying to build out this conglomerate, which caused me some concern before I even was aware of what was going on there, just generally. How do you, and actually we've seen it with the Eagle Labs, for example, Eagle Labs acquiring, partnering with other native IP Mm -hmm. and presumably some non-native and Futureverse, I think again, I don't know if it's announced yet, but they have they've done a deal with a native player in the space. So you start to get these groups. Do you expect that to be a continuing trend? I think there will
1: definitely this down market cycle will mean that there's going to be M and A, and there's going to be an, there's going to be M and A which results, I think, more from the rationalisation of prices than anything else. Also, I mean, there are, and this is a minority and it's unfortunate, but there are some businesses that have been affected by FTX and other things that have external market forces that through no fault of their own yeah. other than bad luck, really. And there are businesses like that that are also going to be subject to m a because they're going to be desperate. Um, but I think for the most part, m a is going to be about talent acquisition because it's been so hard to fight for talent over the last couple of years that now for people who particularly bigger people not in the space so you know like your nikes and other corporates who want to get into the space they now have an opportunity with more rational prices to come in and acquire teams that have been making mistakes and trying stuff for a couple of years and they can really learn from them as opposed to, here's some smart people, but they're new to the space also, and let's go.
0: Yeah. and I guess this, um, the opposite is true in a way that Web3 projects, startups that are high growth, that are capitalized well can begin to benefit from all the layoffs happening in Web2, right? Mm -hmm. Huge parts of the workforce. I don't know what's going on in gaming necessarily, but in in big tech generally, right? They're hemorrhaging hemorrhaging talent. I'm conscious of time, but just wanted to drill down into one particular thing that I'd be interested to get your perspective on, Um, and that's NFTs. And We're talking Mm -hmm. about value flow, equity, Mm -hmm. fungible, non-fungible. Do you think the nature of NFTs is going to change? So previously, they had a, generally speaking, of course, a hybrid role. On one hand, it was like a fundraising mechanism to finance the rollout out of a project at the beginning of a project with a mm-hmm. Genesis drop. Uh, and then on the other hand, or increasingly, we're starting to see it as a form of recurring revenue. How do you see, do you think it's going to maintain both of those or Is the fundraising component going to die off and it's going to just be seen more as a digital product service of recurring revenue?
1: So I always view NFTs through the lens of content because I'm trying to help my game players to own their content. So when we think about making games, we think about tokenizing as much of the in-game content as possible because to the extent that we'd want there to be stuff for people to buy, whether it's land or swords or robots or whatever it is. I think that the ability to do a content presale prior to the launch of a game I think that model is here to stay in gaming okay. because I think it's much better and healthier for the game industry. Now, the reason I say that is because it, you need to, as it, being a small game developer, indie game studio is a hard life. <laughs> and games have traditionally been made on the basis that you can find enough money to make a whole game first based on a concept idea and then. You go and you try to make the game, and then you have to go out and find more money to go and do user acquisition once the game is done, and then hopefully it all works out. And that's a very difficult proposition. And in this model where you can do a content presale, what you're doing essentially is you're starting with a core committed community of players who also then become evangelists for your game, who become beta testers for your game who become your biggest cheerleaders in the game event. This is your community. These are your people. And I think it's very healthy because on the one hand, obviously game companies are selling products to them and can use those revenues for building the ultimate game. But on the other hand, they have to listen to the community. You're essentially testing your ideas in real time with everybody in the community, which is a little bit messy, But what it means is that when you get out to actually launching your game, it's exactly what the community wants because they've been criticizing it all along the way. And so I think for game for indie studios, it's great because it means that you'll actually have a much higher likelihood of success. It may be, I don't know if it's going to be outsized success or more moderate success. We'll see over the years as more more data comes out in the market. But my feeling is that if I have an indie game studio, that's going to be a much more reliable way of me just ensuring i can keep paying my payroll.
0: And that's a great way to end actually because the thing that's really been interesting to me for the last several months which we're starting to see as a narrative form now anyway is when people think of web3 and they talk about composability it's usually in a defi context right mm-hmm. take that primitive combine them and then you have some kind of financial service represented as an app. But if I think about the composability of Web3 to the creative process of making games, making movies, making content, that really excites me. The idea that effectively every asset that's created could become a digital asset on a universal ledger that could be reused, recomposed. So as a minimum you could offset the cost, the risk of producing a game. The actual game might not work, but you've still got all these assets that could be monetized through royalties. Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, you reduce the time because you don't have to build all the assets. You can just recompose and you have a new game much quicker, much more cheaply. And I saw your announcement, the London office launch. Congratulations, Mm -hmm. by the way, just round the corner from us. You were introducing this concept of a new standard around IP and royalty, right?
1: Yeah. And not not a stand I'd say just an idea for a framework of okay. how because and I'm pleased to say hopefully it's we don't have to be too tough about this as maybe we might have thought a month ago, because it seems like a lot of the marketplaces have now changed their mind when it comes to creator royalties. So I'm really pleased to see them coming out in support of creator royalties. Because I think that for us as a company, it's very important philosophically why we think web three is so much better is because it gives creators much more of the fruits of their labor, and it's much more fair to creators. And so I think honoring and respecting those creator royalties and letting the market decide as to what's good and what isn't about creator royalties, I think is the best solution. Meaning... I can decide as a creator that my royalty should be 90%. And then maybe nobody buys my stuff. So the market decides whether I've made a good I've made a good call there. And that's why I think we've seen over the last several years, most creator royalties tend to be on the order of two, three, five, ten percent. They're relatively reasonable because creators understand there's a healthy tension between ability to market and get compensated, but at least there's something there for them. That's very important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, we'll end there, Robbie. Thanks for coming on again. Great to catch up. Thanks for all the support you gave us last year when you invested in, into us and, and also for the industry as a whole. And you guys continued to really help frame a lot of the important narratives for the industry, not just where we are now and the noise, but really looking forward. Good luck with the fund, and let's maybe catch up in, in the new year.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Jamie.
0: If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.